Welcome to Pilot Boys, episode 115. Today we're doing a college football sprint, and this sprint is full of roses. Meanwhile, we did an interview with Robert DeWolf, the founder and CEO of Sequel, which you will hear right after the college football sprint, and it is a great one this week, so stay tuned for that. Um, this is the Pilot Boys. Buckle up your seatbelts, put those tray tables up, and get ready for the flight of your life. Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. And we're back with the first college football sprint of the new year. 2022 is upon us. Um, we're here with Coach Zach Smith. You have a good New Year, Zach. Yeah, man, a great New Year. I mean, just very low key. Watched some uh, the college football playoffs, then hung out at home. You know, I got a 16 month old, so can't get can't get wild on New Year's Eve like, like you used to, maybe. But uh, it was fun. How about you guys? Yeah, yeah, same, same, man. Just stayed home, had fun here. Um, it seems like that was kind of the the theme for this this uh, this weekend, right? This holiday season was like surround yourself with the people you you love and, and bunker down somewhere right, right? <laughs> i got to have nice weather you're up here in columbus is like i don't want to go anywhere <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah true that i mean i still like even even though it's nice out here i wasn't really trying to you know leave the house or anything like that just just one of those one of those weekends but um i got to go see the rose bowl which was you know i, I texted you guys a video of me screaming when we tied up the game with that touchdown um but oh my god that was that was an unbelievable game i i, I loved it i mean i loved every second of it, it yeah was- it was it was it was um exciting you know for, it was very exciting a little bit of a um to be honest i would not it's weird that i'm saying this but considering utah's story and everything they had been through i would not have been terribly upset if they had won that game as well so um i was just happy to see um the team really really like face adversity and show up and cj stroud and jackson jackson smith and jigba put on a show for the ages a historic show um but that's what i was most pleased about like yeah it was like a big 12 score our defense sucked but at the end of the day despite that we figured out a way to win and that's a great message going into next season for in, in my yeah, opinion you know what i just kind of view those games and, and you don't want to say they don't matter and i think we talked about it last week because they do matter and you could tell that ohio, it mattered to ohio state they cared they fought till the end but yep. these games are are becoming the non-playoff games are becoming like exhibitions it's like watching the globe trotters or a spring game and it was just like i didn't care the defense sucked i was here for all the fireworks all the touchdowns all the comeback you know just the excitement it was a fun fun game for me not like a real game that matters it was like a game where you could see some young kids ball out on a big stage and just enjoy the entertainment you know yeah absolutely and i got to say like it felt good to be around you know hundreds thousands of buckeyes in one area that was there's a feeling I haven't had in a while and not living in Columbus for a bit. And uh, I got to stand. I was right next to Jackson Smith and Jigba's family. So I got to talk to his mom and just seeing their reaction at, you know, through the game and seeing 
you know, seeing her son just absolutely ball out and do things that, you know, we, we just haven't seen in a while. I mean, that, I think that's what these games are all about, right? It's like, bring, bring the family together, create an exciting atmosphere. And it's almost like we talked about it last week, almost like a senior game, right? Or, you know, kind of the, the rookies come in, but man, you can see some real stars on the Ohio state offense that are ready to shine next year. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt. And I mean, with as much, you know, notoriety and love that goes to Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave, rightfully so. I mean, they were great players. You know, they're going to have great careers in the NFL. They're going to be pretty highly drafted. Um, first and second round, I would imagine. <clears throat> it's crazy to me when you look at the totality of the season, not just the bowl game, but Jackson Smith and Jigba was the leading receiver on the team going into the bowl game. So never yeah. mind that ridiculous freak show performance we watched Saturday. But he was he was the leading receiver on the team. He's the number one graded receiver in the United States of America right now at the end of the season. You know, better than Jordan Addison, better than Jamison Williams, better than all of them. And he's yeah. coming back. Like that, you talk about something to get excited for that connection right there. And some of the young guys, it was just, it was awesome to see. And it was exactly what you hoped it would be, right? It would be a momentum builder to get you excited for next season. Cause this season didn't go how we wanted it to, but you know, it, it would have sucked if they came out and laid an egg and you're all bummed out all off season, hoping for better. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And I know it, you're always the guy that gets the 347 yards is always going to dominate the headlines. Right. Yeah. Um, but I was most excited about because, you know, I'm a big Marvin Harrison fan yeah. um, in terms of receivers. I think he's probably one of the more underappreciated great receivers of all time. For um, sure. And to see his son come in in that situation and get three TDs and almost look the part like you could yeah. tell, like he's been developed. He knows how to run routes like and this is a kid getting probably his his first real like full-time action in the game to show up like that was also something that made me, made me excited for the future, his future as well. Yeah. There's no doubt. And I, I also just have to say we were talking before the Michigan game about wanting to see CJ Stroud step up, have a little bit more oomph, like a little more presence. And I'm starting to see a little bit, that little bit of that shine on the field. And I got to say, I think watching the placement of the ball, uh, he's got to be the best pocket passer I think I've ever seen at Ohio State. I mean, it, it it was truly. I mean, there was there was some throws that he made. You're just like, holy cow! Yeah. Um. And and honestly, the the receivers' youth showed a little bit. I mean, there was there was a number of routes. Um. Emeka Egbuka had one on the sideline that C.J. Stroud threw the best ball I've ever seen in college football. I mean, he he Emeka Egbuka literally gave him like eight inches of space on the sideline to throw the ball, and that some bitch dropped it in there forty yards down the field. It was unbelievable. And then the uh, obviously the touchdown catch to Jackson Smith and Jigba was just the ball placement was amazing. The catch was phenomenal. And then even the interception. I mean, you watch the interception. Julian Fleming gets washed all the way to the sideline. And so you'd say C.J. Stroud missed inside, but really a Julian wasn't on his mark. So it was a good ball, and Julian just really screwed his quarterback. So I, I thought he played a flawless game. Even the interception I thought was a good throw, just a bad route, in a, in a bad job playing defense on a bad route. So I, I honestly, he and he scrambled for a first down. Christ, I've been I've been complaining about it all year that he didn't scramble. As some bitch in like the first or second quarter, scramble for a first down. I almost lost my shit. I was like, <laughs> who is this? That's what I was saying. That I was I was just like, that's what we needed to see. Yeah, <laughs> I'm telling you. Like I I tweeted it. I was like, 2022 CJ Stroud is 200 percent the player that 2021 CJ Stroud was already. Right. My gosh, what what an amazing offense we have! And to see the defense, you know, we've had some struggles 
you know, <laughs> I, I think that's no secret. And yeah. uh, seeing them actually pull a performance <laughs> together in the second half and show up out of nowhere, that was just – that's what Hart does to a team. There's no doubt. And, I mean, you watch this offense, and and that was an offense that, that you know, unfortunately won't go down in history like like the LSU 2019 offense. It just won't because of the, the end result. But they led the entire Power 5 football in plays over 10 yards, plays over 20 yards, plays over 30 yards, plays over – basically any length of play, Ohio State had more of them yeah. <laughs> except for negative yardage plays, which you don't want, right? I mean, it was just – Kevin Wilson did an unbelievable job. As much criticism as I've given the run game, they were very, very efficient running the ball all year. Um, I think they could have been better and obviously maybe not have lost two games if they were. But that we all know that 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 – so that lands solely on the shoulders of the defense. They just were, they were bad all year. They were, you know, kind of, they were pretty bad in this game. They found a way to get a couple stops to win the game, but you know, it, it's time. There's a new sheriff in town and there's nothing but excitement on that side of the ball moving forward as well. Yeah. I think everybody on the offensive staff is safe. Um, don't think we can say the same for the guys on the defensive side of the staff. Yeah, and I It'll don't know if everybody is on offense either, though. Um, I, I think yeah. there, there could be a change made at offensive line. Um, it, not that, you know, it's it's a glaring issue, but I think but that, is. you know, if you're talking about Ohio State, best in the country, I think that offensive line should have been the best in the country, and they weren't. They were really good, but they weren't the best in the country. Yeah, and, and there's an interesting question for you, Zach, is these guys, right, that, shepherded this defense i'm not gonna you know throw anyone's name particularly under the bus but when you come to a place like ohio state and the performance is this this bad right it do, i don't think any of these coaches are going to have trouble getting another job because they coached at ohio state right no, I mean, you, you always find a landing spot, right? You look at Ed yeah. Warner got fired. He found a landing spot at, in Minnesota. Tim Beck got fired. He found a landing spot with Tom Herman. I mean, everyone that gets, I mean, outside of me, I guess, <laughs> everyone that gets fired finds a landing spot. I guess I didn't really try. But um, yeah. but it, it's it's hard to fall from, you know, the top of the mountain all the way down to the base of the mountain. It's it, Usually you land somewhere mid-mountain. And, yeah. um, and, and you already saw it with Matt Barnes taking the defensive coordinator job at Memphis. Certainly a step down, but he landed on his feet. He's got a job. He's got a chance to run a defense with the staff that he wants without the, the you know, the coaches that Ryan put in place, you know, because you don't know where the blame lies. It probably lies, you know, collectively amongst the group. But but he, um, it's good, you know, it's going to be good to watch these guys go, you know, kind of do their own thing at different yeah. places and, and get their career back to where they want it to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wishing nothing but the best for those guys. Um, speaking of uh, of coaching, um, this Michigan-Georgia game uh, showcased that uh, um, Jim Harbaugh was born on third base <laughs> and thought he hit a triple when it comes to, uh, to coaching. Uh, I was telling anyone who would listen, anyone who was telling me, oh, you're just a hater, you're just a hater, I'm like, Jim Harbaugh, we lost that game to Michigan. Michigan did not beat us. And Jim Harbaugh was going to get a coaching clinic in the college football playoff. Um, and it wasn't from Nick Saban. It was from Kirby Smart. <laughs> right. So all the flack everybody gives Kirby Smart, when you pit him against Jim Harbaugh, he looks like Superman. <laughs> well, the, the, it was it was just, I mean, an utter ass whooping. I don't even know what, what other way to put it. I mean, they got... They got out tough. They got outplayed. They got out 
out. efforted. I mean, they, they just got beat. I mean, old school, take him behind the woodshed, ass beating. And, and yeah. there's no and guy they found on the street who's playing quarterback, Stetson Bennett, puts up a Heisman-worthy performance against he did. And it's it's funny because if you watch Stetson Bennett play this year, like specifically I watched him against Tennessee, and he had he has that ability. He's not a great thrower, but he has that kind of lightning in a bottle ability where he'll go take off and scramble and make a play, and you feel like you're watching the little white kid, you know, yeah. you know, scrambling around like a little jitterbug. Like you're like, go get some yards. Yeah, <laughs> a lot shoot a lot like that the Utah receiver that was unbelievable against Ohio State. Oh, it's just yeah. like, Apparently, his uh, his um, grandfather. Yes, it's Stephen Covey, who wrote uh, Seven, Seven Habits of Highly yeah. People. I so know, it's crazy. Heard a joke about his kick returns. You know, one of the habits of highly effective people is you start with the end in mind. And yeah. uh, he clearly did that on that kick return. No doubt. <laughs> such a cool story. Such a great player. I mean, shoot, he's like, he's five-time All-Pac-12 as a returner and a receiver. Five yeah. different uh, honors as an All-Pac-12 player. Just unbelievable. Yep. And the thing that I really took away from both of these games, you know, both we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the Bama Cincy game, just because I thought it was a good performance by Cincinnati. But what I saw from both Alabama and Georgia were two teams who really looked at the film and studied, okay, where are the holes in these teams that we're playing and we're going to attack their weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a lost art. And, I, and quite frankly, I think that's a lost something I hope, Ryan looks at next year going into the Michigan game. I feel like a lot of these minds, whether they're great defensive minds or great offensive minds, they go with their game plan in mind and say, you're just going to have to beat us. Mm-hmm. But what I saw in both of these games was two teams that said, you know what, we're, we're going to evaluate you and we're going to beat you yep. versus just coming in and saying, we're going to imprint, you know, our philosophy. And I think that's the reason that Nick Saban is, the most successful coach because he doesn't just say it's only my way my offense is going to work or my defense is going to work he adjusts based on the actual team that he's playing yeah and he has the players to be dynamic too yeah definitely does and that's what makes a great coach you're right I mean that's that is how you are successful in at any level of football right is is your your program your scheme your system it is not based on you know, your system, it is based on your players, right? And if yeah. you, you got to fit it to your players. Yeah. And I thought, I, I think Nick Saban does as good a job as, as anybody in the history of the game has done as not only fitting it to your players, but also then attacking a defense, attacking an offense and attacking another program, you know, with his chess pieces. He just does a great job. Yeah. yeah. And that's what, that's what's impressive to me is like, how difficult is it at the college level? You know, you're dealing with guys that are 18, 19, to teach them this much about the game and this varied of schemes versus just having them go out there and out athlete everyone, which Alabama, quite frankly, a team like Alabama could do for the most part as well. Right. I mean, that's the fun part of coaching, right? Is teaching kids, teaching kids football at a high level. I mean, I always, one of my, one of my, probably what I was most proud of outside of just the relationships that I built coaching and you know, the, the, the way I was able to help kids off the field as, as, people and and even as players what I was most proud of is is when kids would go into NFL interviews with teams and coaches would tell me like wow like that's one of the most impressive receivers I've ever met with you know they under they they got up and talked football and I felt like I was talking to a coach and you know for receivers that's generally not the MO (laughs) yeah so 
when Noah Brown got up and, and the Cowboys installed their two minute offense and then they went to lunch and they came back after lunch and he Noah installed it to the coaches and basically hit every X and O perfectly. They walked away saying, wow, I mean, I don't know when we're going to take this kid, but we're taking this kid. And it's like that that just makes you proud as a coach. You're like, good. I I taught this kid football like he yeah. learned a lot. And so much so that NFL coaches are impressed. And that makes you feel good that you get you you put a kid in that situation, right? You you gave him that tool. And Alabama does it really well. Ohio State does it well, did it really well. I don't know what they did on defense. I don't know if they taught him anything, but <laughs> but um that's just that's a great program, right? You're teaching yep. kids the game at a high level. And yep. ultimately they perform better because of it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And yep. you know, that that Alabama game, I think I, I just also want to give a shout out to Cincy. They, you know, they didn't score a touchdown, which was a little tough to watch, but uh, they didn't lose as bad as Michigan did. So, uh, you know, they played the better team. And I, I I, felt like, at least defensively, they held their own and showed that, you know, maybe they do deserve to be in that playoff conversation, you know, from time to time. And it, it was nice to see. I mean, especially knowing where that program was before – before fickle and seeing where he's brought it to it's just nice to see his success and and the evolution of a program there's no doubt i mean if the cincinnati proved one thing they proved that a group of five team can belong you know not yeah. always but they can belong it's it's not it's not the end-all be-all that they're not a power five team they went in and went against a dynamic i mean the best receiver in the country and the heisman trophy winner and they battled they battled i mean jameson williams had i think seven catches for 62 yards i mean that's an absurdly low game for him. So they went in and said, we can't let this kid beat us. Someone else is going to have to. And unfortunately, uh, Alabama had a, a number of young kids step up. Ja'Cory Brooks and Slade Bolden had, had really solid games. And then the offense of Cincinnati just was overmatched. I mean, they, I, I like Desmond Ritter. I like, I like what Cincinnati did all year. They just didn't have the athletes outside to, to go get open and, and score points against that defense. They just didn't, um, but they yeah. had the defense. That defense is a championship caliber defense. If they had an offense to complement it, I mean, they're, they could have, they could have beat anybody. Yeah. I mean, we, we hear a lot and we've talked a lot about Luke's defense, right? And, mm -hmm. and Luke's, Luke's a, a dynamic guy in terms of just his pedigree. Um, the coaches he coached under specific, you know, and worked with, under specifically Trestle, who are very defensive-minded guys. Um, and Luke clearly, clearly is probably the best in the business in college football on that side of the ball right now. Um, what is it, though, because we see this over and over, usually if, 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 if coach's DNA is in defense, their defense is really, really strong, but the offense isn't. What is it that makes it so obviously beyond talent? Cincinnati, we know, is a talent is is actually a talent issue. They're not right. getting the same recruits as. Right. As, <laughs> I was going to say this is going to be an easy answer, V. <laughs> yeah, but you know, let's let's control for talent. But what kind of makes it when somebody's wired one way or the other? Is it just really that hard to have it have the same degree of impact, or is it really about? how much how much control a coach is willing to give up to make the part of the game that they're not great at better well you got to think about it right I mean Ryan Day unbelievable offensive mind the offense is always going to be extremely solid at Ohio State because yep. you have a guy that's proven that he's a one of the best offensive coaches in the country so the offense is going to be great well now he yep. needs a counterpart on the other side of the ball that is that is on his level right that is 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 a great defensive coach and yep. 
that's not like you can't just there's not just hundreds of them walking around right yeah i mean you look at his first hire when he when he when he moved the defensive staff on urban's defensive staff on he brings in jeff halfley jeff halfley's was unbelievable the defense was ridiculous offense was ridiculous they played at an extremely high level and they were playing at a national championship level obviously didn't win it but they were they were playing like they could right yeah and they were in it. I mean, you know that we don't need to revisit that Clemson game, but they they probably should have won that game. Then they then they would have had a chance to take take on Joe Burrow. But yeah. Jeff Halfley leaves. He brings in a couple guys that aren't on that level, and now here we are, right? And that's yeah. what's hard. And and obviously Cincinnati's different. I think Mike Dembrock's an unbel- uh, an awesome offensive coach. He just had, I mean, a guy that looked like me playing X, yeah. uh, trying to get <laughs> open against NFL corners. So it just wasn't going to go well. But you know. It, I think that's what it is. And sometimes it's it's that. And sometimes you look at Georgia. I mean, what they do offensively is not it's it's really good. They just yeah. don't have an NFL caliber quarterback. That's the next part, right? Yeah. You look at what Clemson's doing. I mean, they had like three generational quarterbacks, Taj Boyd, Deshaun Watson, and then Trevor Lawrence. And it's like, wow, they're amazing. It's like, yeah, they have three generational quarterbacks back to back to back. Like, and when the when the third one leaves, you realize that it's not it, they're not making it look quite as easy as as it is. Those quarterbacks were making a making no a difference, no doubt. And and just because it gets a five star doesn't mean he's going to be the next Trevor Lawrence. I mean, DJ Uyunglele was like the number two player in the country or something like that. I mean, yeah. he was just uh, extremely highly rated. It's just that doesn't mean he's generational, right? Quinn Ewers came in and he was he was just okay. Um, and you know, he might be a great player with a full, you know, training camp and offseason. But I think that's what it is. If you need you need great a great quarterback and you need to have two solid leaders on offense and defense to to be at that level. And it's a as a head coach, you have to identify those guys. And that's what Nick Saban does so well. I mean, from yeah. Mike Loxley to to Steve Sarkeesian to Lane Kiffin, just look at his offensive coordinator list. You're like, holy shit. Like he's had some studs on offense and he doesn't yeah. miss. He rarely misses. Yeah. What that's... do you think makes him so good at that? Well, I mean, you look at the, those three names I just named, they were kind of outcast coaches that were, were supposed to be really, really good coaches. And he brought them in as analysts. They weren't even on the coaching staff. So he mm-hmm. had them in house and could evaluate, you know, what he thought of them. How good are they? Right. And so you have, you know, Butch Jones is that was at Alabama, or I think he still is at Alabama. He brought him in. He hasn't been elevated to shit yet, so he must not be very good. But Nick Saban, he brings these guys in and just evaluates them and then picks, you know, it's like uh, it's like having a great company. And you look at all your subordinate em- employees and you're like, man, this one right here is going to be a star. I'm going to elevate them to CFO. It's like, well, how did you find him? It's like, well, I didn't go find him from some other company. I had 10 people in my company and I picked the best of the 10, right? It's just it's it's kind of that filtering from from underneath, uh, building your your corporate structure or your business model from within and having a great culture and, and finding those coaches and promoting them. Man, I love that. And, uh, you know, it's so it's so difficult to build a culture like that. It's so yeah. difficult to to get people to even want to come in to a system until you have it already built up to you know participate like that, especially in a sport where there's so much ego involved as well. Oh, that's for sure. And the good thing about college football, as as opposed to business, is you can you can mf somebody. You can, I mean you can, you can punch a wall, put a hole in it. You can call somebody a a, a pussy. You can do whatever you want. And <laughs> and there's no like HR department. They that they, they don't have HR in college football. Yeah. <laughs> that's fair. That's where the rules are a little bit different. A little different. The, the 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 next topic is an interesting one. We've talked a lot about the transfer portal. This one is kind of a big one, right? Caleb Williams comes into Oklahoma, 
dethrones Spencer Rattler. His coach leaves, and they get a primetime coach to replace him. But it seems like the writing on the wall is there for him to be playing somewhere else because I just saw this morning Oklahoma actually just signed uh, either the Central Florida QB or the South Florida QB. Central Florida Florida. was going to UCLA. just And now he's going to Oklahoma. So it seems like the writing on the wall is there. Like, this is pretty crazy. A guy comes in and, and is the freshman, basically the freshman QB of the year, is impressive in the bowl game and is like, uh. Well, I think I need to go somewhere else. <laughs> well, this is the state of college football, right? And, yep. and I said it a year ago, and people told me I was wearing a tinfoil hat and and on some you know a- alien conspiracy theory stuff. But I, I saw this coming a year ago. I mean, they they made NIL legal, made the transfer portal wide open, and basically just said, "Okay, that's the new rule," and no no regulation, no stipulations, nothing. And yep. so this kid. I mean, he, his camp, whatever his camp is, his agent, his agency, his management company, you know, whatever these each kid's different, they, they catch wind that there's some some corporate opportunities down in Georgia and, a, and and two other places that might net him an eight figure deal. And this kid's like, wait a minute. I know I'm the starting quarterback and a Heisman front runner, but I like ten million dollars like that sounds yeah. fun. And so he jumps in the portal and, and he even said when he got in the portal, he was like, listen, I, I might come back to Oklahoma. He basically just put himself on the market to see what he can make financially. And Oklahoma is going to have to come off the top rope and bring something big or else he's going to leave. And I yeah. think they, you, to your point, they, they made a decision to say, yeah, we're not, we're not playing that game. We're going to go get Dylan Gabriel, the kid from UCF and basically steal him from UCLA's campus. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that's the right move of the program too, because I think there's, there's a few things, you know, with the NIL deals, first and foremost, they're overvalued right now. So a lot of the deals that have been coming out, the structures that have been kind of more cash up front, I think those have been the biggest mistakes possible. Like we've seen just so many failed opportunities and it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of business reasons for why, uh, you know, somebody who's only in a community for a short amount of time that's heavily regionalized. There's a lot of reasons why that can't be valued beyond a certain point, especially from a national brand. But I think for a program, especially if you're trying to be a top program like Oklahoma is, you can't have your quarterback dating other women. <laughs> you know no, what I mean? Like, no, you can't. No, you want to talk to somebody else? Cool. You just lost your spot. And for Caleb Williams, this kid's not that good. You know what I mean? Like, he's not good enough to be doing this. That's my opinion. And, and I think what, we, what we're seeing is um... – NIL is is becoming just a way to pay players, yep. boosters to pay players, right? Yep. You give a kid $10 million, I don't give a shit where he goes. You're not getting that money back. Like, yeah. what do you like? Are you selling Teslas? Like, what are you selling that you're making $10 million back on it? So it's it, business-wise, it, it's it's already a, a loss. They know it's a loss. They're, Cause they're really just paying to get a great player at the school they like so they can win. They don't care it, about yeah. money back. This isn't about this, this isn't about business Uh, this is about the rich boosters at some of these schools having the type of competitive hyper competitiveness where they don't care about what happens to these kids whether or not good deals are happening it's like what's your price and unfortunately everybody has a price and that's just the reality now caleb williams he got into a good program there's a good coach coming in there oklahoma's boosters pay well um they've got a lot of oil money so it's just a decision that i think when he said that when he said 
I may still come to back to Oklahoma. Like you said, Zach, he's like, I'm opening myself up to the highest yeah. bidder no doubt. and whoever offers me the best possible deal. And it's not going to be a deal that's good for you. That's not, that's not what this is about. This is about, I pay me, pay me. And honestly, you know, we can all be upset about that, but that's the system that's been created. It was just behind the scenes. Now it's out front and in the public but this is this is the story of college football f- forever you know no, there's no doubt and t- unless they make a change uh you know at, at the ncaa level which i'm sure they won't um but i think i think there could be some cool things to come of this right like why not yeah. start let's say you know i'm looking at these four schools and start four separate gofundme pages and the teams <laughs> that lose all that money i'm going to donate to to this charity and just just have the fan bases just start bidden like ebay almost <laughs> like you have until this day and just see how much money you can get in there kind of a signing bonus and then some charity will make out and it, this is going to become like it's like the globe trotters at this point it's like it's pure entertainment it's like you know soon you're gonna have decisions like lebron's decision kids are going to be sitting down with espn mm-hmm. to talk about where they're taking their talents it's like high school recruiting all over again with big paydays yeah i think you know i think caleb is the one situation that i just feel like you're a starting quarterback at a great program with a ton of money around it. And that eight figure check you're talking about, that's what you get. You get a $20 million signing bonus. If you're a top 10 pick, you know what I mean? Top five, like it, 12 months from now, well, you could be getting that check. Yeah, I, I don't think that that's necessarily fair to say when you don't have the context of any one situation, whether the people are, because he's also 18 years old, he's still relying on some adults to help him with some of his decision-making. Well, so to anticipate and understand that he's 18 or 19 years old, I think we take that for granted. And this is what this is coming down to is the blurring the lines between amateurism and professionalism. There is value in keeping people in an amateur mindset until they're mature enough to handle professionalism. Now that can be paternalistic. And I understand the other side of this thing as well. But what, what, what I'm leaning toward is there being with all the money that is in college football and the fact that they can pay a guy a $5 million no show NIL deal or whatever they want to do. Why can't they, they allocate some peanuts to creating a structure and system at these schools to help guys manage, learn about business. I know Ohio State allocates some resources for that with Urban. Why don't they actually create a system? That's the question in which these guys are better educated to be able to make better decisions. And the truth is they don't want the system to be that way or it would be. No doubt. And I said from day one, in my opinion, there needs to be a very, very specific and strict guideline on how this goes, right? And, and, and it should involve a trust fund. It should involve these funds being released after, you know, they're done playing or what, what you just can't give a kid $10 million today and be like, all right, there you go and walk away. I mean, these, most of these kids can't handle that, that, that type of money and, and act like a professional, like you said, V. And I think one thing to, to note, like we can blame Caleb Williams or look at Caleb Williams situation as like wild, right? Starting quarterback, Heisman candidate, at Oklahoma, a blue blood, like, you know, top five, top 10 program in America. Why would he ever leave? And it's like, I don't know. Just see what his coach did. Like his yeah, coach did the same 100%. thing. His coach jumped in the portal and USC wrote a bigger check and he went to USC. Same with Brian Kelly to Notre Dame. Like these, these players are not alone. They're learning yeah. from someone. Not only are they 
you know, young and some of them probably too immature to handle these type of decisions and this type of money. But they're they're looking up and saying, all right, this guy was a, a mentor to me. Lincoln Riley was Caleb Williams mentor, right? Coached him. Yep. He I mean, just he led him to the field and a starting quarterback position. And then the guy just jumped ship to USC because it was a better situation. What what what's the difference? Caleb yep. Williams is doing the same thing. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it it's definitely impactful when, when the head coach that you've been, you know, playing under that recruited you there makes the jump. So, yeah, that, that's a very fair point. I think if you guys are looking at the situation, you you mentioned Georgia. Is Georgia an option alongside USC? Oh, yeah. Like where where could he land? Georgia's the, the the front runner from what I've yeah. what I've heard right now. Um, but it's going to come down to checkbooks. But I, Georgia, from what I've heard, Georgia was the one that instigated this whole thing. I mean, it, he mm-hmm. he knows he can get a big paycheck at Georgia, and so he jumped in the portal to see if it was real and what else might come. And and obviously leaving Oklahoma open to to join the bidding war, I guess. <laughs> Watch Alabama swoop in and take him. Good and God. Say, you're going to play for one year, uh, and uh, that's all you're going to need. <laughs> It'll be it, it's a weird one too because the um the uh cash upside right and you know the risk he's putting himself in uh, i'm just curious to see if it'll pan out i'm i like when people bet on themselves don't get me wrong you know it is would i have bet on him no that's- yeah there's there's the thing is i don't obviously he does as zach said obviously he doesn't make this situation if he could look at what brent brent venables is known as a defensive head coach He's made his bones as a defensive coach. The offensive mastermind of this offense is gone. I need to put myself in a position with a coach. And and they say Jeff Levy is that, the guy that they brought over, is a great offensive mind. But I think, I don't think it's a short-sighted decision here. I think it's it's actually the right decision to put himself in a position to evaluate what's out there. Obviously, if he's only evaluating this based on who writes the biggest check, that's one part of it. But it's also what school, what's my receiver room look like? What's my running back room look like? Can I go somewhere that has elite level receivers and an elite level offensive coach that doesn't play in the big 12 next year, plays in the SEC or, or the, I don't even want to mention the Big Ten based on our performances this year, but let's say <laughs> I want to go to a more competitive conference, right, and show what I can do there. Um, there are a lot of football reasons, um, and the same decision the players make in free agency all the time at the NBA level. Is this situation still year to year the best situation for me? You know, and this is a culture that grew up with guys like LeBron James, who whenever a situation wasn't in his favor anymore he didn't hesitate to make the change that he needed to make and that's the psychology of these kids now and and for better or for worse i think it's better to adjust to the rules of engagement like everybody else is than to continue to be loyal to something that nobody else is showing the same loyalty to anyway i I think the other thing i would add is it, it beyond loyalty that an Oklahoma fan base is very similar to, you know, like a Georgia fan base, an Ohio State fan base. Yep. When you have their loyalty, you have their loyalty for life. That's mm-hmm. like that's revenue for life. You know what I mean? <laughs> I I just watched my girlfriend try and buy Kyler Murray sweats, like a sweatsuit this weekend. It's like you still I was like, you still like Kyler Murray enough to go to his site, watch every single yep. merch drop and literally like want every single thing. 
that's that I've never seen that before, you know, from a fandom standpoint. And I think that to me is something and you're I mean, you're right. There's maturity here. There's perspective difference, right? He's 18, 19, 20, whatever. And he's being guided by totally different sorts of people. But when I look at it, at least from my lens, I think the most valuable thing you can have is a fan base that, you know, is bought into you long term. And when you alienate that, you put yourself in a situation where any small crack in your armor becomes something people want to exploit and pile on and jump onto, especially in today's very reactionary society. And I think it's, you know, I think it's a dangerous proposition to put yourself in the portal from such a strong fan base school, right? Like if you're at UCF, you're putting yourself in the portal. Nobody, nobody gives a shit. You know, if you're at a major school, like you get animosity towards you. The only pushback I'll give to you is that regard there's context here. Right. But he also sat and watched this same fan base completely turn their back on Spencer Rattler and literally boo him off of the field as well so i think you're right these you know we we all are understand because of the fan base we're a part of the loyalty part of it but it just seems more and more that everybody's just loyal to whatever they're getting out of a situation um and when when the chips are down everybody can potentially turn their back on you if kyler murray came to oklahoma and sucked it up for three years as the starting quarterback, that fan base would not treat him the same way that they do now. You know, that's, that's the other part of it. Yeah. That's a, that's a really fair point. I think that's, you know, a great commentary on our society today as well. It's a very yeah. fun for me lately society. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no doubt. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, we do have a national championship game that we're not in, um, <laughs> that we do have to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> do we have to? <laughs> but Zach, you you talk a lot about how difficult it is to beat a team twice mm-hmm. in the same season. So I guess that's where I wanted to frame this conversation. Why is that? And it doesn't seem as difficult for Nick Saban to do <laughs> as others, but typically that is a huge problem is is going in and then beating a team two times in the same season. Yeah, I think um I I've I've very, very many times since I, I went through my legal battles and issues that I had, I related a lot to a court case, right? Yeah. I, I went, I, I had to go to trial in defense of myself and we had a trial, right? And we won the first trial outside of one juror. So it was like a hung jury, but we won. I mean, seven of eight, you know, sided with us and we essentially won, won the trial. And then we yeah. came back a second trial and we lost because the other side got to see our entire game plan and that it worked. So we were going to come back with the same game plan, right? We were going to come back with what already worked. Like Mm -hmm. we're we're not going to change what we did because it was successful. And so they got to adjust their entire game plan and we didn't know what they were going to do. Right. So that's what happens. You look at Alabama and Georgia and it's like, all right, Georgia's going into this game saying, all right, this is what Alabama did to beat us. Right. They're going to do a lot of the same shit. Because it worked. It, it, it w- was very effective against our weaknesses. So yeah. how can we tweak our game plan to take, you know, to strengthen those weaknesses and take advantage of them, right? Because our game plan didn't work. And so on top of that, it's just the law of, of averages, right? Like if two pretty equally talented teams play twice, they should split 50-50, right? Yeah. And so if you put both of those together, I think that's why it's extremely hard to beat a, a really good team twice. Do you think that 
Georgia is a really good team. I do. Um, I think they're, you know, they have their limitations. Uh, whoever wins this game this year is not going to be in the conversation with last year's Alabama team or 2019 LSU or, or Trevor Lawrence's Clemson team. They're not going to be in that conversation because they're not as complete a teams as those teams were. Um, but, and I, I think Alabama is, a, the, I, their weaknesses aren't as weak, if that makes sense. But yeah. they, I mean, Georgia, Georgia has a blueprint now. Cincinnati's defense shut down Alabama's offense for the most part. And now Georgia probably is a more talented version of Cincinnati's defense. If they can just mimic similar things that Cincinnati did, they're going to have success on the defense side of the ball. They're also going to be a little pissed off. They got ran off a big stage in Atlanta and they're going to play with a chip on their shoulder. And they also, there's a whole narrative, right? That Georgia already lost to Alabama once in the national championship game. Kirby smart can't get the monkey off his back and beat Nick Saban. I mean, there's so many things to play hard for that. I, I think that the Georgia's defense is good enough to, to completely shut down Alabama because they lost John Mechie in that SEC championship game, their, their second weapon in the receiver room. And now they got a bunch of young guys out there. So if they can find a way to do what Cincinnati did and just shut down Jamison Williams, and then their front seven is ridiculous. We saw what they did to Michigan's run game. If they do that to, to Alabama's run game, then you're talking about this is going to be a really low scoring game. And Stetson I hope Bennett's we don't see have... a repeat of that. Remember that LSU Alabama national championship. Oh gosh, game. please. No. <laughs> Just brutal. <laughs> that was terrible, terrible, but terrible, terrible. We'll but see. I mean, I think Georgia has Georgia. Georgia to me is. I mean, I'm taking Georgia to win it all. Oh, Do you nice. think that in uh, in the moment, right? Saban's known for his game time adjustments and what he's able to do. Do you think that that gives him an edge going into this? The ability to change up at halftime. Nick Saban's always going to have the edge in, yeah. in, in that department. I mean, he's just he's proven time and time again that he's he's the best there there ever has been at at making coaching decisions and and in game adjustments and things like that. So he'll always have that edge. It's just got to it's going to have to overcome things. It's going to have to work, right? It, just because yeah. he has the edge doesn't mean it always works. Yeah, fair. Yep. Wow. Yep. Well, it's going to be a well, good. Who you, who you have part that you have Alabama? I I can't root for Georgia, so yeah, Alabama. <laughs> Yeah, I've got Alabama in this one, too, because I've seen enough data. It does seem, I do believe that Kirby Smart is very intimidated by his ex-coach, as most of Saban's ex-coaches are, except for except for our, our Lane Kiffin, but he's just irrationally confident most of the time. So <laughs> that's just normal for him. Uh, so I do have Alabama, Alabama pulling through. But like, like Zach said, I won't be surprised, considering it's the second time they've played with the injuries that Alabama has um, if Georgia comes out of this with a, with a, a low scoring, boring dub. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be to their advantage. The more boring the game is, the more favors Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> well, well no, uh, we're excited for that. We'll do a recap after, after the championship and, you know, dissect a little bit of this season. We'll probably see a couple more dramatic, transfer moves or something in the next week the way this year has been going yep yep zach thanks as always um for joining us uh and we will uh we'll catch up with you next week the season is really coming to an end it sucks mm -hmm. when football ends it really does but i appreciate you guys having me on I look forward to talking about the game hopefully we get some sort of excitement <laughs> yes we need it we need it show the pilot boy some love by getting some of our exclusive merch at shop.pilotboys.com. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast.
Hey, this is Partha. Not only am I a pilot boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. I started Lasso to help people improve their movement on a daily basis. We design and create compression apparel that enables you to move confidently, recover safely, and ultimately be the best version of yourself. We use a patented compression technology that activates key ligaments and tendons to help you improve your proprioception, coordination, and balance on a daily basis. Lasso socks were recently ranked number one by Men's Health because of how much they improve how your body works and the overall comfort, softness, and feel of the product. We're very proud of the Lasso socks, so check them out on our website at lassogear.com or at lassogear. Undo Media is proud to be the production partner for the Pilot Boys. Storytelling is what they do. From video production, podcasting, and consulting, Undo Media's focus is on telling your story. Find out why four Emmys and hundreds of clients will back up why you should contact Undo Media for your next project. Look them up at undomedia.com. Today we are interviewing my very good friend Robert DeWolf, the founder and CEO of Sequel, a company that uh, V and I have had the pleasure of working alongside and really getting to know Rob over the last, uh, I would say, like two months, right? Uh, yeah, uh, two months. Yeah, we met through a mutual friend and uh, just immediately hit it off. And um, we wanted to bring his story to you guys today because Rob is just one of those people in the world that's pure heart, just a very genuine guy doing things for the right reasons. And that's the kind of people you know, we, we really think fill the, uh, the Pilot Boys creed here. Yeah, Pilot man. Pilot Boys, what's up? What's going on, man? Uh, we've, been, we've been planning this interview for a while. I feel like we've gotten to know each other well enough to do more than, a, more than one interview. So I'm sure we'll have you back uh, more, than, more than this one time. But I think um, I really, uh, really gravitated toward your business basically because of the, um, the amount of experience I personally have had in the world of, of sports, specifically both at the amateur and professional level, knowing that there are, are challenges at every level um, and specifically at the amateur level, the number of challenges athletes have just to be seen. We all hear about the five-star, four-star, you know, 24-7 rivals, number one number one players. But what often happens is there's a lot of talented players in, in all sports who are not at the top of the totem pole, who aren't being seen, who aren't being recognized, and quite frankly, don't know what to do to get that exposure to potentially get a life-changing college scholarship or a life-changing opportunity at a university. And that is exactly what you built your business upon your personal experience with these challenges with a friend. So I just wanted you to, to give a little color on that. first. Yeah, no, I love to V Partha loved uh, getting to know y'all for the past couple of months. Um, Everybody. I'm Robert the Wolf. Uh, appreciate the nice intro. Uh, a little bit about me personally from Richmond, Virginia. Played college football at Virginia Military Institute, which on a map is right in between UVA and Virginia Tech. I'm sure y'all are familiar with those schools. And uh, yeah, I started SQL, which stands for Sports Equality, with my best friend from high school, B, who Partha and V both know. Um, and two and a half years ago, Bryant and I. Brian stands for B. I, he goes by B now. I always call him Brian. Um, and uh, two and a half years ago, he and I, you know, moved back to Richmond, Virginia, where we were both from. Uh, we were shooting the shit one day, 
and we were just talking about our sports careers and, you know, it ended up getting really in depth, got serious, got a little bit emotional. But what we talked about was how there's a bunch of inequalities that B was just alluding to in, you know, sports in general, at the youth level, at the collegiate level, at the professional level. Uh, you know, we didn't make it to the pros, not yet. So not yet. A couple of years, a couple of years of eligibility on there. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I learned pickleball this past week when I was in uh, the British Virgin Islands. And if that is a professional sport, I might have a shot at that. Yeah, you can go um, pickleball. Bro, pickleball. that is a fun sport. Yeah. Um, such a fun sport. So we were talking about, you know, the inequalities specifically that Brian and I faced. And when Brian and I were growing up, best friends um, since 14, um, you know, when we were on the football field, we were the same person. Uh, you know, we had fun. We loved it. We had grit. And when we weren't together, uh, we lived com two completely different lifestyles. I grew up in a, you know, family, family status where um, I was really fortunate. I didn't hear the answer no to things, you know, from my parents specifically regarding sports. If I wanted a trainer, I wanted a highlight tape. I wanted someone to just you know, tell me what to eat right. You know, I could just say, hey, mom, dad, I need this to make me a better athlete. And they said, sure. Uh, Brian, on the other hand, didn't have access to resources like that. He didn't have access to a trainer. He didn't have access to on-demand content resources. He didn't have access to go to, you know, combines and showcases that really get you exposed. Uh, and because of that, I ended up going division one and he ended up going division three. So I was here and he was there. But if you actually look at, you know, our talent, it was flipped. He was a better athlete than me. Uh, I know that's hard to admit, but Brian, yes, you were a better athlete than me. And uh, <laughs> do you say that to his face? Uh, I do. I do. I do. He was a better athlete than me. He knows it. And, um, you know, we're going to cut athlete this clip me. and send it to him so he can. Yeah, please do. Life. Please do. It'll make his year. <laughs> <A highlight. laughs> we just keep running this loop of he was a better athlete than me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's he was he was a better athlete than me. But yeah. because I grew up, you know, having access to resources to elevate my career. I went D1 and he ended up going D3 and that's a crazy story, but we ended up putting together like a highlight tape in May. You graduated in May and he didn't have like a college decided in May. We put it in May and, you know, thankfully, you know, he was lucky. He, I got an opportunity to go play ball. He went to division three, um, which at the time we were just super thankful for, but we were recollecting on that. We said, that's bullshit. We said, Hey, Brian, because I had, you know, a different family status than you, which you know, you can't grow up and just say, hey, I'm going to be rich and I'm going to be poor. Or, you know, I had a different experience in sport. And then we just dove into this problem. We said, hey, not only is, you know, your family status, but if you're in a big city or a small city, you're going to have a different, you know, uh, trajectory in your sports career. It gets down the race. If you're black and if you're white, it goes really into you go here, or you go here. And even the sport you play, and he said, that's bullshit. And we said, we're going to build a company that's going to provide the five-star football player in Alabama and the no-star women's gymnastic athlete who both want to go on to the next level, access to the same resources and opportunities. And we're going to be called SQL, which stands for Sports Equality. Uh, we are going to be a company that is a for-profit, for-good ent entity. That is a mission-driven company. Um, you know, I got it right here on my wrist. I firmly believe that we are, and I know it because we live it every day, we are a company about our why, not our what. We're all about our mission. And that's about, you know, elevating and providing purposeful initiatives to every athlete, regardless of where they're from, regardless if they're rich or poor, and regardless if, you know, you know the color of their skin. And 
we hit the ground running. And, you know, what we've come up with is that athletes have two intrinsic motivations. They want to get better and they like the media. They need to be exposed. If you want to go on to the next level, someone's got to find you. Mm -hmm. And if every athlete wants to get onto the next level in some way or form, they want to get better. So we're going to democratize access to those two things. So we're going to help athletes get exposed by free content offerings. We have a network of videographers, boots on the ground guys nationwide. We call them our, our, our Ubers, our videographer Uber drivers that go out and throw our boots on the ground workforce. They're capturing content um, of all athletes of all sports. And then we have an interface that is similar to masterclass, um, which for a lot of you, if you, hopefully some people know that. And if you don't, that's fine. Cause I know I didn't at first masterclass is a company that essentially provides short bit content personalized to what you want to do. So if you want to become a better cook, you can go on there and watch Gordon Ramsay. If you want to become a better business leader, you can go watch Bob Iger from Disney. And we have an interface that provides, you know, purposeful content from the best trainers in the world, the best athletes, the best brands, the best really mental health experts to help these athletes get better on and off the field. Uh, as you guys know, highlight tapes are super expensive. And to be honest, even if you have the money, a lot of times you can't even get access to them because it's only available for the five-star and trainers and those types of resources are super expensive. So what we do is we provide those initiatives to athletes for free. And we work with brands to be our impact partners. They provide impact capital to us. It can come out of a cause marketing. It can come out of a uh, CSR, which stands for social uh, corporate social responsibility or social impact fund. And they essentially tie their names to these offerings. They tie their name to sponsoring 100,000 highlight tapes. They tie their name to you know content to how to get an athlete bigger, faster, or stronger. And for that company, it. Uh, and we go after companies that have similar ethos as ours. They align their ethos with ours, you know, joining the sports equality movement. They provide purposeful initiatives to athletes with that capital. It's not just a, you know, um, a pre-roll or a static Instagram ad that they hope the athlete sees. It's actually purposeful value. And in turn, you know, these brands get early access to these, uh, to these athletes. And, you know, hopefully, you know, our hypothesis is Hey, an athlete's going to watch something An athlete's going to get a video from a company. And because of that initiative, they got onto the collegiate level and they will be a loyal follower of that brand. Let's just say lasso. You can wear a lasso sock until the day you die, right? You can't wear You can't be a collegiate athlete at 65 years old. Not yet. I mean, we'll <laughs> see if they get any more, uh, you know, transfer rules in the transfer portal. And, you know, you can get, you know, people from 1980 going in there, you know, that's what we do, man. And uh, we also have a portal. Uh, similar to Zillow, where colleges can discover these athletes like searching for a house on Zillow and brands eventually will be able to, uh, you know, do off the, forward, off the field endorsement deals with athletes, uh, you know, in a virtual type setting. So yeah. I know that was a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, happy to answer any questions, any specifics. Like I said, I know that was a lot. So, uh, yeah, no, you know, the thing I like about your business, Rob, is I think there's like two ways to start a company. The first is you look at the market as how it is and you find a way to make money in it. And that's how like, you know, most entrepreneurship is like, if you look at most of the software companies that have been built for huge, huge amounts of value, they've not really driven society forward. They've just made it easier to do something simple that, you know, we all do and we're willing to pay for in some way. Yeah. Right? I, it's rare to meet other entrepreneurs 
who have a desire to make society better. Yeah. And I think I, what I'm curious about is, you know, what, what gives you that feeling and why did you, this is, a, I mean, this is a tough thing that you're doing. Uh, yeah. it, you know, it's, I mean, we feel it too. It's like when you're trying to do something that is different from how things have been done, it's an uphill battle every single day. So what, what like got you into actually wanting to do this full time and, and, you know, to really bet your livelihood on it? Yeah. Uh, I would say Brian, um, this company wouldn't have been started without Brian's experiences. Um, you know, I know a lot of people that grew up in a similar situation that I have, and they only care about going to the country club on a Sunday and, you know, uh, you know, living that lavish lifestyle. Uh, you know, I grew up, Yes, I had access to these resources, but I wasn't spoiled. Uh, I grew up knowing that. And I grew up knowing that um, because I played sport, that got me into college, right? If I didn't go to BMI, I wouldn't be on this call with you. I wouldn't know who y'all were um, and vice versa. And because of my opportunities through sport, I was able to get where I am today. And I figured, hey, 41% of kids right now live in lower income situations and they can't afford damn near anything. I mean, nothing that I was able to afford. But if there was a way to positively impact youth and provide a democratized platform where we know that every kid on SQL won't get on to the collegiate level and get on these NIL deals and then go play you know, professional ball or go to the corporate America. But we knew that if we gave kids access to a potential of doing that, that that's life changing. And um, it is tough. You know what I mean? Uh, it's, it's not easy. You know, uh, you know, one thing that I really struggle with sometimes, and I'd like to hear your perspective on this, uh, Partha specifically, because you know, you're the CEO. A lot of times I think I see things so clearly, like I see the vision, like right there. And it's like, we can do this and communicating your vision sometimes is so hard. Um, you know, I've learned through that, through the process that communicating your vision, like nobody sees the things that you do, you got to like adapt and you got to be able to explain things specifically to certain people. Uh, you know, I think that's something that's tough for me. Uh, I'd like to hear yeah. something, you know, and yeah, I know it's kind of like off tangent, but it's funny you say that that's what, uh, growing up, everyone used to make fun of athletes for being communications majors. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's actually the hardest thing to do. It's yeah. communicate what you think, feel, or, you know envision it's impossible to do it perfectly so you have to try and get close yeah and you know that was kind of like a side tangent um you know, that's a tough thing that i go through but like yeah i mean you're gonna go through ups and downs every day i heard a quote from a founder um i think her, name, her name's ty haney she founded outdoor voices and i listened to a, a podcast about her and she was saying if you are, are an entrepreneur and you don't go through every single emotion every day you're not doing it right. I mean, I don't know about you, but there are days where I'm like, shit, we're going to be that, you know, big successful company that's impacted millions of lives and has a big exit, like the company I just told you about. But then there's also days where I'm on a walk and I see a Chipotle and they have a hiring sign. And I'm like, well, damn, at least, you know, maybe I have a fallback. Maybe they'll take me if you know, shit, you know, shit hits the fan. But you go through those emotions every day. And if you don't, then I think that you're, you're being comfortable and, being in a startup is about all, all about being uncomfortable, right? Um, yeah. But that's life. If, if, if we want to go down that same cookie cutter path, then there's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that at all. 
but we don't want to do that. We want to make change and making change is, is tough. It's disrupting industries, it's disrupting billion dollars industries where there's been things that are this, this, and this, and we just want to go through and say, no, but you got to start small. You got to start small. You can't do it all in one day. You got to start small. You got to get to A before you get to B. Yeah. I think, uh, there's also, I think one thing I also like about communicating with you as opposed to communicating, um, with a lot of other people who come from similar backgrounds or privilege is the word that that gets thrown around is the lack of self-awareness of that, right? Either the lack of self-awareness or using that as a, as a way to look down on other people and not have the empathy or the perspective to say, you know what, part of the reason why I'm where I'm at is because of the advantages that I had no control over. Right. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean in entrepreneurship or in a lot of things, when you enter a realm, that doesn't always mean that you're guaranteed success. Right. But there's a, there's a, there's a, something you're trying to solve for here, which is to try to level the playing field. Right. Right. And, And how do you, how do you envision in in a perfect world if if this company was to be as successful as you hope it to be what would you define that level playing field as within athletics yeah what i define that level playing field in athletics is that all kids across the country across all sports that have a mobile phone which is about 98% so um have access to SQL on their phone. And if they are in need of something such as, you know, to get exposed, okay, they can click a button and they'll get a videographer to get the content that they need. And that will get them exposed. If they have a big game tomorrow, if they have a big event and they want to perfect something within their game, they can go to SQL and they can learn from one of the world's best about, okay, this is how I'm going to perfect that drill, or this is how I'm going to get better in that drill before that game tomorrow. Um, and it's a twofold thing, right? Because we define what we provide as resources and then opportunities. From an, That's a resource perspective. From an opportunity perspective, I view this as a kid is going to have access to be seen by any college coach in the country. And that doesn't mean that every kid's going to go on and play at Alabama. We don't say that. And we're not going to guarantee that because you can't guarantee that. And that's not meant to be. Not every kid is supposed to go play at Alabama, right? Yep. There's nothing wrong with Division Three or Division Two or Division One ball. We want every kid who has the potential to be seen, right? And then yep. you know they go on to the collegiate level and they want to make money because you know college athletes have always deserved the right to make money, and thankfully now that they can, if they complete X Y Z requirements, such as you know a curriculum within our education that describes financial literacy or brand building, that they have the opportunity to do off the field endorsement deals. So it's making sure that every kid has access to resources, which is that, you know, educational content and the ability to get exposed through video content. And then every kid has the same opportunity to be seen by colleges and then brands, you know, when they get to that level. Yeah, man, I love that. I I think like it's it's there's the wealth inequality, but there's also I think there's situations where like for me as a kid, a lot of my peer group didn't want to get into sports as seriously as I did. So it's like, you know, when you're, even for me, I was, I hung out with, I'll say it. I hung out with the nerdy kids at school. So 
you know, when when everybody's we're in, all really surprised by that that, that, <laughs> that, that um, earth shattering yes. today. Um, I feel like it should be more surprising. But anyway, um <laughs> it's like I would go to, you know, math team or whatever and all all this different stuff. And that's my group of friends I'm trying to play sports with, but they're not, you know, athletic, right? And yeah. so what 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 does that lead to? Like I I took part in probably you know, sports that were less mainstream as a result. I took part in fencing. I took part in ultimate Frisbee. Mm-hmm. I did a marching band. But had I had a database, the internet didn't really exist meaningfully when I was, you know, in, in the age I needed to be to actually use my athletic abilities. Um, but had had I had this type of platform that you're describing, Rob, I would have had the ball handling drills I needed to, you know, be able to make the team at tryouts you know what i mean i would have had like my parents were immigrants they didn't even know how to get me a coach you yeah. know it, yeah. it's like that's an information gap that's not even like a yeah. no it, and it isn't information you don't know what you don't know you yeah know? yeah yeah that I, I think there's like that's that's another part of the problem that gets solved with um, you know these types of content ecosystems in society is that you have places where yeah, as a kid you can explore and find areas of interest that you have and in the society we're building for ourselves you now have a fully curated uh you know lane whether it's in sports or like you mentioned masterclass they do it in other other sectors as well like that's a beautiful thing about the world we're building right now is every kid has the opportunity to really define what they become now in you know in their own way if they are driven to do so yeah. Yeah. And that's, a, that's the important part if they are driven to do so. And we are really, you know, one of our core values as a company is accountability. Um, you know, I personally think that should be a core value of anybody <laughs> and like accountability is huge, but, you know, specifically let's talk about athletics, right? There's a lot of times where the kids might have the potential, but they just don't want to do it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like they might have the potential, but they might go, Hey, I want to go be a frat bro at whatever school. And yeah, I had the potential and yeah, my parents want me to play, but I don't want to. And that's fine. And that's like totally fine. Um, But if you do want to make it, there is a sense of accountability. You don't just go to college, you become a college athlete and you live a luxurious lifestyle and you're taking 12 credit hours and you're going to the beach on Monday through Friday. And then you just show up to a game and, you know, drop 30 on, uh, on Saturday, there's a sense of accountability and, a lot of times kids get to the collegiate level by, you know, being a lackadaisical kid that has all the talent and then they get there and they either transfer or they quit or they just say, you know, screw this. Um, accountability is huge. And we definitely incorporate that through our app as well, because you know this. I mean, let's specifically just talk about the entrepreneurial world. If we're not accountable, we're not on this call right now. But yeah, it's the, the same thing pertaining to athletics. Yeah, it's a great analog for you know, the sports world is that you have a lot of people that want to do it. And then, you know, year by year, people fall off. There's a stat 90, 98% of companies fail. I don't believe that 98 of people should 98% of people shouldn't be starting companies that start companies. The 2% yeah. of people that start businesses were already going to succeed at anything that they did because they have the character traits to push through all the bullshit that you deal with. It's the same in sports. It's It's the same in everything. But you have to actually like what you do to push through the BS. 
Yeah, I hundred percent agree. Uh, like one million percent. Yeah, V, I'd like your intake on that as well. I think also, I think sometimes you know we put too much pressure, specifically on things like sports or business. Yeah. It's not always about success or failure. Ninety nine percent of people who play play sports in high school are never going to go to the college level, and then one percent of those people are going to go to the professional level. That's not really what sports and accountability really is. It's about building the mentality to be able to do and discipline yourself to pursue something at your best potential, right? And that's where the accountability comes in. Do you have the discipline to wake up at five in the morning and go to practice and then after practice, go to class and still get your degree? Do you have that in you? Because the, the reality of what SQL is trying to do is give you a platform to be able to take full advantage of all the resources, being an athlete or getting a scout, potentially getting a scholarship opens a door for beyond just the sport. And I feel like in culture, we just, we, we key in too much on sports culture from a, a entertainment and sports level. But some of the most successful people that I know are the failed high school, high school or college athlete who just weren't good enough, but they were, they worked harder than everybody else on the football field. And that helped them in life because the discipline they learned from their football coaches through pursuing that to the best of their personal ability is what opened the door for them to be great in something else. And that's the same thing with the kid who's starting, whose parents encourage him to start a lemonade stand, you know, when they're five or six years old, you might not be good at it. You know, you might not sell any lemonade, but there is, there are valuable lessons that come from all of these things that yeah. aren't directly correlated to that thing. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. I 1 million percent agree. You know, we talk about, okay, what if it was a, fa- you mentioned it, what if it is a failed college athlete? Well, it's still a college athlete because yeah. they were a college yeah. athlete, their lifetime earning potential, their lifetime, you know, just trajectory you know, I don't have, you know, the exact percentage, but it's significantly don't have increased because of they those don't experiences. have student loans. Is a, is a- yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, no, you're a hundred percent right. Um, you know, because you know, sports leads to opportunities. You know, a lot of people think that, you know, sports is the opportunity it is, but it leads to more opportunities. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to, you know, accomplish through our platform. Um, because even if we help kids at the high school level and they don't go on the college, what we provided them will still strengthen their foundation in life. Yeah. You know, the the other thing I love about sports is that it has this, this very literal nature, you know, it's easy to see if somebody's doing something right or if they're doing it wrong, it's easy yeah. to measure success and failure. It's harder and harder and harder to evaluate those same things in the academic world, in the business world, because you just don't, you don't see it, right? You can't see somebody's thought process. You can't see the way they're handling a problem. I'm sure you deal with this a bunch in your business, Rob, as, as do we, it's like you might express something or somebody might be working on a project, but you really don't know if they understand what you're communicating to them or not mm-hmm. until you see the outcome of what they create. And that'll yeah. tell you if you communicated it well or not. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, I think a lot of times um, we forget that the best form of communication is listening. Mm-hmm. And I know personally, I'm a horrible listener sometimes, actually most of the time, because I'm always 
banking about what do I say next? Like, what, you know what I mean? Like I was just at a lunch literally two hours before this and uh, my colleague was going on a rant about something and, you know, I was already thinking about what am I going to say next about his first point <laughs> that he brought to the table, yeah. you know? Um, you know, I, uh, I'll be truthful here. I was not the biggest Kobe fan when he was in the game, but after the game, like when I heard him speak, I was like, I was fucking in love with that dude. Like, I love Kobe. Like, I got a Kobe jersey for Christmas this year. Yeah. And I heard this speech. Um, Y'all know that a bunch of times, like, these big-time athletic programs bring in the A-list celebrities to, like, yeah. you know, they're, like, you know, speak to them. And Kobe went and spoke at Alabama. And he said, you know, it's all about communication. And then he got into listening. And he said, you know, you shouldn't only listen to what people said, but, what to, but to what they didn't say. And I was like, damn, that was <laughs> – that was powerful, Kobe. Um, but I think that's true. I think, you know, I've learned when I am an effective communicator is because I listen. Um, and I think a lot of times, like, like you said it, you have to wait and see what the outcome is. You know, I think part of the time, you know, if the outcome as a leader, if we're telling someone to do something and the outcome wasn't what we expected, we have to sit back and reflect and say, what did we actually tell that individual to do? Because one word, two word, three word that we think is so copacetic can literally be you know, the opposite between black and white, right? And uh, we just, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you at that point. Yeah, I mean, start, starting a business, and you guys are, starting a business is never, is never easy. It's It sounds fun. And if you follow people on TikTok and Instagram and you just see the pictures of, the supposed, oh, the supposed lifestyles oh, that, you, you, that people are living, but for you guys, right. And specifically for you, you know, based on what you're saying, say hi to the cat, uh, <laughs> based on what you guys are, what you guys are saying, it's like, you made this decision to start this company, what, 25, 26, I'm guessing is yeah. kind of the, is kind of the, the age. And that's, that's also a tough thing to do at that point, right? To make that decision where you're still trying to figure out what you're trying to do. And you probably see this with your peers. How many people, even after they graduate college, are unsure what they want to do, right? But when you start a business and you have a focused interest, you know that you've got to be committed to this thing, right? Yeah. And, and how much do you think your background as an athlete helped you and able to have that type of discipline to start a business and, and go through everything, the bumps and bruises that it takes to go from start to greatness, which are still on the path to, right? Yeah. And, you know, I'll answer this question first, if that's cool part of that. I mean, I think like you said from path to greatness, bro, we are still in the path, right? Yeah. Like, you know, um, I think a lot of times, you're right. Like I have friends that I know see my Instagram or see my LinkedIn or see something like in the news. And I mean, I get a hit up every time, like literally like last night, someone like DM me and they're like, yo, we're doing the best job. It's like, well, <laughs> we still have a long way to go, my man. And uh, yeah, you, I, I do this to like, you know, make sure people know that we're still kicking. Like, you know, um, it's tough. You know, it's, they don't see the, you know, y'all are, in the you know apparel business obviously with a niche with uh you know your product offerings and we're in the sports media business you know essentially y'all work with a lot of athletes and so do we and that's what the world sees they don't see what we do 
they don't see the, you know, the QuickBooks that I'm looking at at three o'clock in the morning or the, you know, 19 page legal document that I don't understand. <laughs> and a lot of times, I don't know about you, Partha, but like, I forget that I'm in, sometimes I forget that I'm in like, you know, the sports world because I will like spend a week doing something and I'm like, <laughs> you know, like what, what did I just, you know what I mean? Like you get so caught up doing these, you know, things that are, you know, necessary or, you know, necessary at the time that you forget about this outward facing thing that you are portraying that everybody else sees, but they don't see the little things and they go, Oh, I wish I had your job. I'm the, oh my God, man. I'll never forget when I quit my corporate job, the lady said, Oh, that sounds so much fun, more fun than this. Like you are going to have the best and easiest lifestyle. And I was like, <laughs> you have no idea what you're talking about. Like, um, but specifically related in the sports, sorry, I went on a tangent there. I mean, it helped, you know, I, I, every time that I get on the call with a, with a founder, or even people in the venture space, you know, the venture space sometimes is, is uh, cruel, but you know, there are some good people out there, <laughs> you know, and you can talk about your sport experience. Everybody always says, yeah, I wouldn't be here without my team. I wouldn't be here with my team. And that's the same as sports, right? Sports, we're a company, you know, uh, we're yeah. a team. Um, I think there is a misconception sometimes and I've learned this and I believe it's t a startup as a team, not a family. And the reason is this, if, you have a family and someone's throwing 40 interceptions a game, you'll do, you will get help for that. Somebody you will nurture them. You will take care of them. You will get them the quarterback coach. You'll send them down to the British Virgin islands for a week just to make them feel better. But if you're on a team and you have someone, you know, fucking up like that, you got to fix this. You got to fix the problem. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're a team, not a family. I, I love my teammates, but still, we got to always progress as a team. You got to get from here to here. And then the next year you got to do 10 X that and then hundred X that. And, um, that's why I believe that a startup is a team, not a family, because you gotta, uh, you gotta have the best of the best at all times. Um, that's, that's well said, Rob. I think that there's this, it, it, it's, it's a point that I think needs to be made for, you know, more people to hear. I think society's gonna, have a tough realization with it, but it's, it ties to accountability, right? Which is in a team and even in, you know, a society, you're responsible for your own individual development. That yeah. means you show up to work or you show up to practice or whatever it might be ready. And you do your own work outside of that to get your skills up and to improve yourself. Otherwise you lose value over time to the team or organization you're trying to be a part of. And I think that, Right now, you know, I, I, the labor shortage has been a big hot topic in my life because it's yeah. we're a manufacturing business. So, um, the lack of dependable employees in in the U.S. is is extremely uh, felt by our business, and it is a cultural change that is causing a lot of that. It's this desire for everybody to, you know, set up multiple income streams, sell NFTs, do all of these things, and that sounds great early on but we start you know when you start to really pull the layers back if you're building your whole life to escape from life to get to a financial situation where you can stop working then that's not a life worth living because then you have to ask the question well what happens when you reach you know that financial threshold that so many people are driven by or that freedom of time threshold then you get bored then what are you going to do with your time right yeah and once you figure out what that thing is, that, in my opinion, is what everybody should start with when they're trying to decide what they want to do for work. And we're in this time period where 
the majority of society as a result of COVID spent a lot of time at home doing nothing and started to ask these questions. Well, why do I actually do my job? And many of them realized they were only doing it for money. And so there's this kind of reconciling happening right now in between people having these financial needs and this greater desire to find personal happiness, which is now a hot topic in society. I think that we're in the midst of this, this exact kind of accountability shift where you know the society we're, we're evolving into will have a higher bar for individual accountability, but there's this huge period of friction right now where people just haven't gotten to the realization yet that they have to be self-driven when society can automate so many roles, when society can, you know, essentially do it all with computers and run on computers, then what is your worth as a human being? Not from a financial stand standpoint, like, you know, let's assume like you'll figure out a way to pay your bills if it's Chipotle or if it's whatever, right? Like we can all find a way to pay a bill, but what's the way that actually like gives back to you and yeah. helps you, you know? to pay your bills and, and take care of your basic needs. And I think that, yeah, I, th I think that's the big question that, you know, that brings up for me. And that's the challenge, you know, I, I'm a little bit older than you guys. So some of the experiences that, you know, I, I speak to Partha about, it's like, okay, I'll, I'll get through, you'll get through this. But the reality about being an entrepreneur or being anyone that's pursuing anything that's outside of the box or that society doesn't structure for you, it is a, it, people will lie to you if they tell you that it's not a lonely journey from a personal right. standpoint, right? Because most people aren't wired the same way. And the, the sacrifices that you have to make from a personal standpoint and all of that in order to start something that has never been started before and take that from nothing to something, it takes a toll. And and as you said, Partha, you have to know that this is something that you love. But I, I always kind of laugh when I hear hear these like work-life balance type of things people around you pretty much have to adjust to fact that you're not as available as the typical person you have to adjust the fact that you're not able to do the same social things that everyone else does with their lives or make the same personal steps that everyone else seems to be making at the same time you know it starts as simply as you can't go to that party when everyone else is going and it turns into i really can't socialize with my friends the way that i can't develop friendships all my friends are kind of my people i work with you know what i mean so there's that aspect too that i wanted to ask you guys out about specifically at this phase in your life because they say that your 20s and 30s it's important it's really important to have more work-life balance um and and if you were to lean one way make sure you enjoy these years but it seems like both of you guys have kind of made the decision to lean into to finding purpose during this this phase versus kind of just figuring it out and guessing yeah no I, I mean i totally agree with you um my circle since starting this company has gotten a lot smaller um a lot smaller um and some people get it and some people don't uh i think throughout this process you also realize who your real friends and who your real relationships are um as you start to live a life of purpose and start to live a life of mission you will also find like-minded people within your friend group and those will remain your friends um, yeah. you'll also have people that 
and there's nothing wrong with this, you know, and I have to realize that sometimes that, that people just don't want to, you know, have meaningful talks as friends or don't want to, you know, have fun, unique experiences. They just want to shoot the shit, drink and, you know, recollect on the old memories. You know, that's something that I've learned um, and, you know, something that, you know, I've learned that, hey, I am fine with giving up things. I'm totally fine with it. I want to live a life of change. I want to impact people's lives. And I know that now's the time to do it. I know that um, you are going to lose friends. I'm probably going to lose friends. I'm it's not a probably. I'm definitely going to lose friends that I think are close right now as, you know, two years from now that I might not talk to anymore, but, uh, you know, I'm cool with it. I, um, it is different, but I personally believe that if you really want to make a change in this world, you have to give up things that, you know, the majority of people won't, and you have to sacrifice things in the now that suck, but there's those things that you sacrifice, does it correlate to your long-term vision? And if they don't, then, yeah, it might suck, but just put it to the side for the time being. Yep. Yeah, that's that's so well said. I think that you you highlighted something that is core is the losing of friends. It's the isolation. I mean that that doesn't stop. And I think anytime you choose to grow at your own pace, you leave people behind. And the mm-hmm. only people that you you end up with are the people who can match your pace, and yeah. you're with them for as long as they match it, or as long as you match theirs. But I think all three of us on this call are are more in the former category where we've felt people just fall off, just not maintain the same level of drive and desire to improve and desire to push. And it's, you know, it's what you said, Robbins, are the resources there for everybody who wants to put in the work, right? Yep. And I think in the business context, you know, despite what what many say about venture and all of that, for anybody who wants to put in the work, the resources are there. The thing is, everybody complaining that things aren't fair in business doesn't want to put in the work. They ah. want it to be easier. And like, you know, I would say once platforms like SQL get fully nationally known, and even now, you could argue that in sports, the resources are there. There's enough media to train yourself. You know, there's enough media to make yourself a better athlete. So if you want to be an athlete, it still takes every single day of work. It still takes the discipline and accountability and, and the lifestyle sacrifices. And you know, V has this thing that he says a lot, which always sticks with me. It's like every path, every outcome has a price and you just have to be willing to pay that price. So yeah. would you rather be not your fullest potential and have you know more friends around and know you paid that price? Or would you rather take that path and pay the price of having you know, a little bit less socially, et cetera. And everyone has to make that choice for themselves. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think one thing for people that are, you know, for the millions of people that listen to this episode and uh, are contemplating on, uh, you know, going all in on their entrepreneurial journey or not, is that I think everybody in this call would say yes, but it's really important to know that when you do, no one cares about you. Like, I think that's a really important thing. And what I mean by that is just because you quit your job doesn't mean that the Nike CEO is going to answer your call tomorrow or that even like the low, you know what I mean? You got to work your way up in basis. You can't just go, okay, well, these 50 venture firms that I really want to get investing from are all going to answer my email within about six hours. And I'm going to have 50 meetings next week and we're going to close our funding round in about a month. That doesn't happen. 
you got to be persistent. You got to keep on knocking. And when you continue to knock, you'll figure out which doors open, which ones don't. And for the ones that don't, you'll find a different door to get into that house. And uh, that's really, really important to know. And something that I think that we all learned. I'll never forget the first week I quit my job. I was so excited. I was like, what? Also, like, what the fuck am I doing? And I was also like, well, no one really cares. I changed my LinkedIn status and I got about three and a half likes. <laughs> and uh, I'm still getting yeah. no answers on my uh, my calls. I mean, there's there's two famous things that I always see on uh, on social media. Like, nobody cares, work harder, right? That's one. Yeah. And, and the second thing is if you if you post on on your social media that you got a new job that you'll get 500 likes. But if you say you're starting a new business, you might get four likes, you know, because it's like that psychological thing people go through, which is they want you to be in the same world as they are in, right? The masses, we have an employee mindset society. And when you decide to venture out and say, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing. You think that it's, that's why it is your own thing, right? It's lone. Don't expect a whole bunch of people to support your idea now when when you're successful they Uh, might they'll definitely answer your calls or they'll find your phone number in their phone and call you randomly but that's all part of the process too it is to to bring it full circle it is lonely to pursue your own path in life you know yeah i uh i had a call with a venture uh venture uh guy out west a month ago and, you know, we just started talking about, um, you know, I gave them a pitch. I got to hear their pitch. And then we just started talking. I was, uh, my dad connected me with this guy. And um, he was like, are you, are you sure you want to do this? Like, are you sure you want to do this? They kept asking me. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I've been doing it for two years. This is what I really wanted to do. And he's like, you know, is, is it hard for you? And I was like, damn right. It's hard. It's the hardest job in the world. And, you know, I told him what I told y'all. You go through every single emotion every day. And he's like, Robert, I was, uh, I was at a, uh, a dinner like eight years ago and Elon Musk was at the table and someone asked Elon, what's it like being an entrepreneur? And Elon's answer was, imagine walking outside, throwing a piece of glass on the ground and then picking it up and eating it. And that's what it's like every single day. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, damn. (laughs) And guys, that's coming from, you know, that's coming from Elon eight years ago. And that, you know, that, 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 Mofo already sold PayPal. You know what I mean? It's like, think about that. Yeah. yeah like, think I mean, about someone saying it at that, at that caliber that has so much clout, so much recognition and so much credibility at the time. And he's still saying that. It's like, well, shit, hell yeah. That means Elon's goals are so big that no one really cares. Like, yeah. no one, I mean, they're, they're all probably saying, oh, that's impossible. But Elon's like, no, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to eat glass every single day along the way. And, and that's the problem, right? With for someone like him, the moment that he starts getting recognition and clout, it's like there's the process where no one supports you while you're there. Then you get there and, you know, your shareholders are happy, right? But then you yeah. have this whole media blitz and all these people that are trying to tear you down. It, it's every company deals with this. There yeah. are just as many people who hate Apple as love Apple. There are just as many people who hate Elon and it's irrational, right? And you've yeah. got to deal with it. And even in the, in the process of the business, you're realizing that when people do business with you, that sometimes they're framing their decisions and their approach to you emotionally versus practically, right? And yeah. it's, it's, it's a never-ending challenge. It's one of the reasons why I've never 
never really desire too much clout because I don't like the price. That's a price that I don't think is a fair exchange. <laughs> yeah. That's a, you know, that's a thing that I've gone back and forth a lot on. So Rob, I don't know if you've, if you've noticed, but I've actually deleted my Instagram recently. And yeah, I, man, it, was a, it was national news, man. I, I saw it. <laughs> about three text messages. That let me know that three people actually look at my stuff. Um, but <laughs> it's like one of those things where it's like, you know, I've gone through an up and a down where I had, um, you probably don't know this about me, Rob, but after my first, first, uh, year in entrepreneurship, I was doing a business. I got invited to, uh, the white house and it got me a ridiculous amount of press. Uh, I met with Obama. Me, yes. Yeah. yeah you told me about that. So essentially I went on this That's crazy fine. like press run where everyone wanted to fuck with me. I won award after award after award after award for like years. And I got to this place of just extreme emptiness where I was like, okay, I'm supposed to be, you know, this, but yeah, I just don't feel it. Like, I don't feel yeah. like it's happening. And it's kind of this, it's kind of the same thing. It's like backing away from that price of, expectation and obligation and all of the pressures that cause you to do things that don't actually make you happy and letting go of fame or success or any of these notions has been the only way for me to preserve happiness and the acknowledgement with taking that path is you you when you sacrifice the desire to have clout you also sacrifice the ability to build a business with clout you have to build long-term. You have to take, like for us in the brand world, the analogs Patagonia. You have to do the Patagonia thing and stand for some shit for so long that people just implicitly now know it's a part of the world, right? Yeah. That's it. And it's that, to me, it's like every path you choose can have different outcomes, but I don't think that what Elon has chosen is the enjoyable one, you know? Mm -hmm. But I do think it's the only way he could have achieved the uh, the things that he's done, and the, that's that's what we all have to reconcile with ourselves: is what is necessary for us to get to the end goal. I would argue yeah. that the Elon's life isn't Elon's, right? He made that decision, pursuing the things that he's pursued. I mean, he can complain and gripe about all of it, but I think he probably implicitly understands that his his life is not fully his own, right? Yeah. It's yeah, it is, I think yeah. it is controlled by the rest of the world. Do you guys? I, yeah, I think when you get to that caliber, it's it's kind of it's like that. Really. Do you? I, I, I do. Would Yo. you like what? I, that's a spectrum, obviously. But like, what portion? Let's say if we were to do a percentage, what portion of your daily actions do you want to have total control over? And then, what portion of them do you want to do, kind of because you have to do them for for society? I mean, give me like an example. I'm kind of, I'm actually kind of. No, I'm going to ask V the same question. So V's, so like, V's premise is that Elon's life is not his own, right? And like the point of that is he has to do a lot of shit out of obligation or yeah. he has to play this role in society for others to yeah, be but, able to push society forward. Yeah. And so he's not, you know, 24 seven, like the majority of his decisions are not, you know, what's going to make me happy. What's going to make Elon Musk happy. Yeah. yeah. So, V, what first of all, what ratio do you think Elon's at? And we'll use that as a benchmark. And then V, you answer the question, then Rob, you answer it. Yeah. I mean, I think we we have enough examples of the meltdowns that 
this brilliant guy has had over the years to know um, that from a personal standpoint, his life is in, isn't exactly um, in the best shape. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I don't want to delve too. I never like to delve too much into to people's lives that I don't know, but there's enough public information to realize that here's a brilliant CEO whose personal life has had a lot of issues along the way. Um, and that balance, that work-life balance for him, and also the examples, he he sleeps in the office for weeks at a time. Like, this guy does not know how to turn it off. I would never want to be that extreme towards something. Um, but, and I think for me, it's almost the opposite. If I'm not passionate about something and I don't have empty time in my day to do absolutely nothing but think, and have and have clarity on the things that I'm doing, I would lose my mind. You know, I wouldn't be yeah. able to function like someone like Elon. But I do understand, you know, the different people in society have different roles and different obligations to fill. Just because I wouldn't want that doesn't mean that that's the that's the right thing for Elon or vice versa. And I think once we accept that as society, like I think too many of us in this world are looking for someone to be like. Yeah. And sometimes we don't realize that that person that we're looking to be like doesn't really fit who we are. So I'm yeah. going to frame this with numbers. I'm going to say Elon's about 90, 10, 90, 95, 95, 5, 95, 5, 95% for others, 5% for himself. Yeah. V I would put at 30, 70, 30% out 70% for his own happiness. Would you agree with that V? Well, considering my my family dynamic, it would be closer to 60-40. I'm right about 60-40. About 60% of my actions are out, 40% are for me. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you at on that, Rob? I'm like 75-25, I think. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I'm like 75-25, I would bet. I've pulled back. I've viewed that like... Yeah. Huh? I've pulled back in the last year, but I would have aligned with you 12 months ago. Yeah, see, like, I I think the ultimate scenario is where you can, like, align both together so that what you are doing for yourself is bettering society. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I think that, you know, I read this quote um, four months ago, like, and, it, and it's such a simple quote. I probably even read it before then, but it said, be a missionary, not a mercenary. And that really stuck with me. Uh, Mark Lore, who, uh, you know, founder of Jet.com, he uh, now owns the Timberwolves with A-Rod, was like, when I was 25 years old, I put goals in my office desk the first day at work. By the time I was 30, I wanted to be six figures. By the time I was 35, I wanted to be seven figures. By the time I was 45, I wanted to be eight figures. And he learned that as soon as he wanted to live a life of mission, that you know, he started just achieving all the results in the world. It wasn't, you know, when he built his goals, it was, hey, I want to impact lives, not, hey, I want to make a million dollars. He knew that, you know, by affecting lives, that there could be some offsets, right? There could be some outcomes that could be monetary, but he wasn't living specifically for the monetary reasons. Yeah. And that's what I strive to do. I strive to live, and I've really adapted this over the past years, um, you know, with starting sequel, but also, Personally, as I live, it's let's live a life of mission. When you live a life of, you know, bettering the world, when you live a life of bettering lives, when you live a life of bettering your own life, 
from a mission standpoint, you're going to, I, I have viewed that you will begin to achieve those results. You know, I haven't hit nearly any close to near all, any, all my goals at all, but like, I think that's what we need to do as a, as a society more is be more missionaries, not mercenaries, because if you want to be a mercenary, you're always going to want more and you're always going to want more from like a tangible number standpoint. And I think from like a missionary standpoint, you're going to be able to accomplish your mission and you're going to always get it. There could always be more, but I think there will be much more gratitude when you hit um, from accomplishing your mission versus accomplishing, you know, your mercenary goals. There's yeah. some there there's some extreme examples on the missionary side too with some of these mega churches and stuff like that. Yeah, dude. <laughs> so we I just know, have to. Man. It's 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 one like, but I, I I your your point is well taken, right? And that's you know, there's a book called The Purpose Driven Life that uh yep. that's a that's a that's a great one. Um, but I think you're dead on, right? It's not about work life balance. It's about understanding what your goals are and also understanding the sacrifices that you're going to have to make uh, to get there, right? If you are a missionary, you are going to pay a hefty price um, to kind of get to that, to get to to where you're trying to go. Yeah. 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 Well, Rob, the whole missionary mercy. I remember the first time I heard that from you, it it really resonates. I think my question to you is like, when you're doing (laughs) the missionary work, is there ever a time that the work required of you is draining? Yeah. I mean, I think that really like the little in the weed stuff. Yes. Like yeah. In the weed stuff is draining. I hate yeah. in the weed stuff, but big things. No, like, yeah, no, I haven't like gotten to that point where it's like, fuck, I fucking hate this. No, I love it. And I, I would say that, is what happens for Elon because he's trying to be a missionary, right? But yeah. he's got bureaucracy. He's got bullshit to deal with. He's got shareholders that are mad at him. He's got a million problems. Like, I think in our society, the fate of anyone well-intended to build something meaningful is that that missionary part of the work starts to fade as it gets larger and larger. No, I, I agree. And, you know, I was actually talking about this with someone today, just about like, you know, the longevity of sequel, this specifically pertains yeah. to the sequel. Mm-hmm. There will be a time that I won't be the CEO of this company. It could be three years. It could be five years. You know, I do believe that you want fresh energy. You want fresh, you know, uh, you know, people within the organization, specifically at the, you know, executive role that, have different experiences that are more mature than you that could provide a totally new twist into a vertical that you haven't attacked yet and you've already accomplished your main vertical. And I think that's fine. And I think as leaders, you have to be okay with that um, because then, you know, you can take a little time off, you recoup, and then you go do your next mission. And, you know, I was talking about that with specifically with someone today. And I think that, you know, a lot of times people get scared of that and they're like, fuck, no, this is my baby. Well, sometimes you know your baby will progress and then you need someone else to you know manage that part of their life and if people can understand that obviously that's tough as shit right like that's tough you know you could say fuck what did i just do right after it happened this whole company just changed but you have to find the right person to adjust and you know that's we're a ways 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 away from that you know that if that happens it when it happens but i do think that um you know, turnover cycle from an executive role. I don't know the exact years to be specific is healthy. 
I mean, you know, I let's say Steve Jobs, right? You know, let's say if he didn't pass, would he still be there? Would Tim Cook come in? You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that said, fuck, Steve Jobs is the president of this company. Tim Cook doesn't know shit. Well, Tim Cook had a pretty significant milestone yesterday, $3 trillion company, right? Yeah. And then someone else- The company wouldn't be it. worth it. I will say matter of factly, the company would not have the same valuation if Steve Jobs was still the CEO. No, no, because yeah. he's, uh, you know, Steve did what was needed at the time, but Steve, yep. uh, you know, Tim can push he, out things quickly. He's an operate, Steve, yeah, he's an operational genius. Tim's a perfectionist. Yep. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that that illustrates like a really nice point here is that there's people cut out to take the baton, you know? Yeah. And it's like finding your, everything's a spectrum. Everything has got its own phases. Like one thing I've learned about myself, I'm not, you're, I'm not day one. I don't like day zero. You know what I mean? I like yeah. to take things from like semi formed to like fully fleshed out ideas and thoughts. Um, but at the same time, like I, I, I also feel that there's there's certain unique lenses I can apply to things to, to bring out you know, unique outcomes in businesses. And I think it's like finding where your strengths can can fit yep. the progression of a business is is the job of an entrepreneur. It's yep. finding where you fit in the system and in society. And society is always changing. You know, the way we value assets is changing and. You have to put yourself in a position where not only can you use your talents, but to use your talents in a way that uh, is also financially responsible. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. You know, one 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 other thing that that I always think about. Right, we were just talking about this. What's your what's your duty to other people versus your duty to yourself? I think specifically in entrepreneurship, and just in the pursuit of happiness generally. I wouldn't even use entrepreneurship that there's an endless space that void that needs to be filled of examples and knowledge to be given back to people who, you know, part of what you're doing with SQL, giving, helping people know that there's someone like them and telling your story, giving back, you know, and sharing the knowledge that you're gaining, not just after you've already succeeded, but along the way. And I think that's one of the powerful things that I see of, among CEOs of, of and, and founders in your age group is the lack of fear um, amongst some of the best ones of sharing um, yeah. knowledge, sharing best practices, sharing what works, what doesn't, being really honest about their failures. I think more than anything, you know, if society continues to shift there for the people who are going to be successful entrepreneurs, having those examples is is important. We do deserve transparency. You don't always have to have to give it, but I think yeah. it's it's definitely something that's uh that's beneficial too as as a founder oh, CEO. I totally agree. And you know, with that, I believe that you will get better reception from your your entire ecosystem. Not I mean mine. So like my ecosystem, just from like an individual standpoint, could be my family. It could be our investors. It could be our employees. When you're more vulnerable and you discuss your failures and areas that you need help, you will actually have better outputs in the short term and near and long term because they will say, shit, I can actually help this kid. And because I helped this kid, they got from here to here. And now I want to help even more because from here to here meant that they, you know, did X milestone within the company and that, you know, increased A, B and C. And that was because of me. And when you do that, that's, it's exciting to see, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. 
Well, on on that note, you know, we've been we've been going for a while here, and yeah. as we predicted at the beginning of the episode, Rob is probably going to be on for a few more. Um, Rob, man, so glad to have you, and I My think guys. the audience probably saw this. You know, this is something we caught on to right when we met you. You're just you're just a, a real motherfucker. You're a genuine dude, and there's so few people like you out there. So keep doing what you're doing, man. Like we're super proud to be your friend, to be a part of this, and. You know, we're here to support you along the way. And obviously our listeners will hear more from you down the line. So thanks again for joining us today. This was an amazing conversation. And, you know, I, I, I'm taking a lot away from it. Not me as well. Both you and B had some you know, interesting points, interesting, just small bits that y'all probably heard each other talk about, but stuff that I heard for the first time that I will definitely go to sleep thinking about tonight. And uh, everybody stay tuned. Lasso sequel 2022. Let's get it, man. Let's get it. All right, dope. All right, take care, man. See you, man. All right, see y'all.